Yo, what's good, listeners? It's your boy, Chef Jeff. And this is Food for Thought. Yo, what's the word, listeners? It's your boy, Chef Jeff. We back at it again. We're going to continue and we're going to finish the the review slash overview of the 50th law. And I, I got this feeling, bro. Is this the best one yet? I don't know, man. Y'all tell me. Y'all let me know what's up. But let's get this ball rolling. So chapter number eight, mastery, a.k.a. slow money. So 50 Cent gives this story about some older hustler in his hood. And the older hustler, he starts investing, he invests into a franchise, like a like a McDonald's or a Wendy's. And the, his thought, his frame of thought with him by doing this is, yo, this is my, my next get rich money scheme. So he invests into it, he, he puts it in the hood, and it's a legitimate hustle. It's a legitimate, you know, it, he got to sign documentation and things of that sort. But the problem was that everyone around him did not think it was legit. Like, uh, let's say, like his neighbors who were, you know, who were not hustlers and they were just regular common working folks. They did not think it was legit. And they just thought it was almost like a cover up. So no one visited his hus- his his business, his establishment. And it became like a hangout spot for the people who were hustling because they kind of saw it like, yo, this is our spot. Homie used to trap with us on the corner. Now he got his business. We better just pull up there. And that was a that was a big problem because there's no revenue coming in. You know, the the common folks who are going to come in buy buy his product, they weren't coming in because they were intimidated by the clientele that was in there. So, what what happens here? Homie had to shut down the whole business. And the reason and Fifty Cent highlights this point because he says he didn't give time for people to accustom, to get accustomed to his change. He went too fast to this new life and he didn't build up like that slow residual grind to this new hustle. Like, you know, let's say, let's say he's hustling then he stops hustling. He just gets a regular job. People see him with a suit and tie or just, you know, even a, even just a, a blue collar job. But now that they think that they have this idea that he's legitimate, he could have just saved that bread. And then after they, they think he's legitimate, he starts the establishment, and they would have gravitated towards it. So he, he 50 Cent gives that example of like that, that slow money, that slow process in his youth. But then he also gives the example when he gets a little bit older. And he talks about how execs, how they would, they would build this emotional relationship with money. And they can, and they use that against Fifty Cent, or try to use it against Fifty Cent, and and the way the way that they would use that is like you know offer him these contract things of that sort, but almost like dangling it in front of him, and they would try to impose their importance with this money, with this capital, and that would feed their ego. But Fifty did Fifty Cent didn't want any you know get rich schemes or you know he didn't need the endorsements. He knew. He was creating a long-term sustainable business, maybe not specifically with them and maybe him like or his brand. So he never, you know, indulged in those, you know, propositions that he was offered. And then 
So then Robert Greene starts going get into examples and he talks about in the beginning of civilization boredom did not exist and any free time that did come up it was reserved for rituals so what does that mean boredom literally did not exist because you were always either looking for your way to get your next food your next meal you were hunting or you were gathering and what kind of allowed that process for boredom to begin is essentially farming and irrigation because that was able to create surplus of amount of food so that allowed you to spare some time granted it does take a lot of effort to farm and many times that was why families had you know couples had such big families because they literally needed more hands to work on the farms but as time went by surplus became more of an uh, you know abundance amongst communities and you know, better irrigation systems made for better efficiencies for this process. Freedom and essentially boredom became a thing. And then, but he talks about the importance of boredom and how as life got easier, boredom became an, easy, uh, became an issue. And there's a common saying that says, idle time is the devil's playground. And I think this kind of connects with very tightly because you know, I personally agree with that saying where, you know, how many times you, you, you didn't have anything planned and, you, you know, you do bullshit for that whole time that you didn't have anything planned, you know, when you could have been efficient or productive. And with this empty time, the, the mind gravitates towards like future problems and this causes anxiety because we were, as hunter-gatherers, we was always, you know, sticking to the immediate problem. Where's my next field, food? Where's my next meal? But, you know, as those problems became, I guess, non-existent, now you're just thinking about other future problems. Oh, what happens about this drought? What happens when it's like, no, you guys stay just present. But we start using distractions. And these distractions can have like a drug-like effect on us because they, they eventually wear off, just like drugs, you know. Uh, you start playing a game, a game to distract yourself. At some point, you get tired of the game. And the entertainment has a faster, has a, and the reason why we kind of gravitated towards this entertainment is because it has a faster pace than work. Essentially, it time goes by faster. And by that, we assume that work is boring because it feels long. But in reality, th this is the wrong mind frame that we have. Because <clears throat> the longer, just because something is hard, and extraneous and time-consuming does not necessarily mean it's boring because you're working on your craft and it's like you want to fall in love with the process and he talks about how spending time alone becomes hard because you're not used to it and there's another book that i read where it says great leaders spend a lot of time alone and a lot that may be forced, you know, I'm thinking about Nelson Mandela when he was in jail, even even Martin Luther King when he was locked up in, in Brigham in Brigham Brigham, I can't pronounce that in Alabama. Excuse me for any listeners from Alabama. But you know, there's a there's an importance to being alone. And when you're alone, you, you're able to almost like, you know, find your passion. And there's an importance to finding your passion and you know, finding your passion or, you know, looking for your bigger goals and that that helps us endure the 
endure work essentially because you have something bigger to look forward to and we can look for our dis- for distractions in our you know our whole life or we can create or follow our passions and that's something more meaningful and technology has kind of made this process of you know being patient a lot harder because we expect everything to come fast and five principles that you know to help you develop proper relationship to this process is they begin as one progress through trial and error two master something simple three internalize the rules of the game four attune yourself to the details and five rediscover your natural persistence and i'll touch on number three he gave this interesting example of thurgood marshall the the lawyer who who was who fought for the uh Brown versus Board of Education for to um, to to create uh, mixed schools or integrate schools, and they talked about how when he first graduated from law school, he was offered this really good position at a law firm, but he decided to create his own law firm. And by him creating his own law firm, he was able to get exposed to what the the industry was like, and he was able to realize, you know certain parts and certain players and major players and things of that sort and the importance of that and that allowed him to like pay attention to the rules of the game you know you may you may disagree with the rules but the rules are the rules and you gotta play by them so you're better off mastering the rules and making them work in your favor so chapter nine self-belief or a hustler's ambition and in this chapter he talks about the story 50 cent gives is he talks about how his mom when he uh, when he was born, she was raising him alone, and she was a hustler on the street as well. But eventually, she gets killed, and then he moves in with his mother, oh his grandparents, excuse me. And then from doing that, he he forms his own mentality. And here you kind of talk about like the importance of having your own mentality, having your own opinion, and your opinion of yourself becomes your reality. And there's this famous saying by Henry Ford, a quote where he go he says. If you think you you can do a thing, or if you think you can't do a thing, you're right. And I love that quote because it it emphasizes the importance of your thoughts on yourself and how how real they are, regardless of their positive or negative. And then another couple other points that Robert Greene goes over is that people give you compliments, but they low key saying that they want you to be a certain way. And that they don't want you to change because they they're emphasizing this quality of yourself that they really enjoy, and you know I I've had that experience to a certain degree where, you know I used to be a really big smoker, and and people would tell me like Yo Jeff like you know you mad cool to chill with I love smoking with you. You know what what are they telling me like, they're telling me that they enjoy this this experience that they're having with me while we do this this activity. What happens when I decide to change my character and decide not to do this activity? Are they still gonna be fond of me? Will they still look out to hang out for me? Will they, you know? And this was a very interesting and learning, exp- and you know, I learned a lot through that experience of, you know, deciding to change that aspect of me. And Robert Greene talks about stop getting your identity and your self-worth from others. So you don't want to be looking at others' examples 
of how they view you and you internalize that and use that to define your own character. And you need to stop measuring yourself by other standards. And your personality can be altered. And there's one, there's this study I, I heard one time, and it talked about how majority of people believe that you know the most dramatic changes of their life happen between the ages of like 25 to 35. And in the study, it talked about how you have a dramatic change between the ages of 15 to 25. You have also a very great dramatic change from 25 to 35. Another great dramatic change from forty from thirty five to forty five, then forty five to fifty five, and only after the age of sixty five is where the changes aren't as dramatic, but they still are occurring. And that was, I remember I listened, I heard that when I was about, let's say twenty one. Uh, right now I'm twenty six. I would have never thought I would be the person I am now, and the changes that came with it. And I always think back to that because at that time, I was like, damn, really? Will I change that much? I can't even think of myself. I like the way I am now. But I, I love the way I am now. I prefer myself way more now than how I was back then. And I can I can only think of how much more I'm going to love myself and the changes I'm going to make, you know, five, ten years down the line. And I'm excited for that because I feel like I'm in the path where the changes are beneficial to the desired outcomes that I want. And that that study, it always stuck in my mind because I was just so surprised about, damn, changes are going to occur that dramatic throughout that long period of your life. It was was very interesting to me. And if you follow others' opinions, you will have no balance. That was another point Robert Greene talked about. And then it made me think about how how Buddhists always talk about, you know, always stay in the middle. You never want to be too extreme. You never want to be too excited. You never want to be too sad. You want to stay in the middle. There's a level of, like, uh, calmness and equanimity when, when when you think like that. And then a couple other points where they talk about is in the hood, your identity is constantly under attack. And those in the hood have to fight twice as hard for the battle of their identity. And this part really, you know, intrigued me how Robert Greene emphasized the, the how much harder the battle is for your identity in the hood. Because I always knew it was apparent, you know. But here's an outside factor again, outside person looking in, and he sees this obvious battle that people who grew up in this environment have to go through. And not everyone has to go through that. And that it... I don't want to say as validity to it because we don't. I, we don't need an outsider telling us shit's legit when we already know how it is. But it's interesting that it's that obvious that someone outside can see it and see how apparent it is. Because I, I felt it. You know, I, I decided to make certain changes to my character and my look, my style, and people would constantly, you know, bring back that old shit. And not that it was negative, the old shit, but it's like, that's that's not the type of time I'm on no more. You know, I switched up a little bit. I'm just, the, I'm the same me, but I'm a better, improved version of me. But that also may mean that I may not be, you know, we're not rocking the same way we used to rock. That doesn't mean I don't rock with you no more. But I'm just on a different time. And people in the hood are constantly bringing you back to that form that you were. It's almost like they don't want to see change because they're not, they're not changing themselves. 
And so an example in history that Robert Greene brings up is through Frederick Douglass. And he talks about how slave owners used to beat him and send him to, you know, certain other slave owners where they used to beat slaves so that they could lose their identity. And Frederick Douglass never did that. He never lost his identity. He would go, they'll send them to these slave, uh, like, let's call them camps, where they'll beat you and, you know, break you down, break your spirit. And it would, they would never, it would never happen to him. And they would realize that they can't break his spirit and they'll just send him back to his original slave owner. And his original slave owner would be more fearful of him because he knew his tactics weren't working on this man. And this not only happened with when he was a slave, but also when he got to the North. When he got to the North, a lot of northerners, white Northerners just wanted him to do speeches and travel everywhere. Almost almost have him like a token. But he decided not to. He wanted to start his own newspaper. And, you know, he, he went against the grain in that form. Even by the people who you thought would support him. They were also constraining him to a box. And he said, no. I'm going to be what I want to, I want to be, I'm going to be what I want to be. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that was a great example, I thought. And Frederick Douglass is someone who I admire a lot and how he, the ability that, the ability to get to the position where he was coming from where he did, very impressive. But they talk, Robert Greene also talks about don't have a passion, uh, don't have a passive freedom. And here he talks about passive freedom and active freedom. And a passive freedom is almost like an ability to satisfy your needs and your desires. But you're still a slave to your environment. You know, you. And I, I kind of felt like I used to do this a lot too when I used to smoke. Where I would smoke and I would just become more accepting of my environment. Because I was getting high and I was more chill. And then the, the other active freedom is having control of how you react to what happens to you whether it's good or bad so it's you know you start having more autonomy of your emotions and more control of how to deal with things regardless of you know these experiences whether you perceive them to be good or bad you have complete control of how you react to it and then five strategies to um to uh, that he puts past, to get past these limits is defy all categories, constantly reinvent yourself. That's that one I really resonated with. Subvert to your, subvert your patterns, create a sense of destiny, and bet on yourself. And that constantly reinventing yourself, I I I always I, I always try to do that to a certain degree. Whether it's my look, growing my hair out. Whether it's my style, you know, starting wearing new new kicks, start wearing just classic shoes where I might have been on the Jordans. Now I just might be on the on the shell top, the Adidas, or I might be on the you know on the wingtips. You know, I got it's changing up the the style and the physically, but also just your way that you are. So, you know, I used to smoke all the time, mad chill. I I, I cut out the smoking. Now I'm more thoughtful. And insightful, I personally believe. You know, who knows? But chapter 10. Confront your mortality. A hustler's metamorphosis. And here 50 Cent talks about how how Jam Master J was his mentor. And how Jam Master J was getting him a, a record contract. But he, because um, at this time, 
50 cents funds are running low. And he gets him a contract with Columbia. But at this time, the, the con, Jam Master J is going to be getting the majority of that advance. So 50 starts hustling again. But he starts hustling more aggressive. But he creates enemies. And by doing that, that's what eventually leads to him getting shot nine times. So he loses the contract. But 50 starts going even harder now. And people started to see his progress when he started rapping after he got shot. But 50 had changed now. He, he didn't care about the money, the clothes. He didn't care about none of that. Every single dollar he made, he reinvested into his music. He reinvested it to himself. Essentially, he, he kind of burned the boats where that expression where, you know, the Roman army gets to the, to the you know, to the beach to fight their, their enemy. And they burn their boats out to assure that they won't be leaving until they either conquer or die. And that's kind of what 50 Cent did. It's like, yo, I'm, I'm doing this. Either I'm going to die, <laughs> I'm going to get rich and die trying, you know. But he eventually gets to that point where he gets, you know, even higher demand. And it brings him to, you know, the point where he is now, eventually. But uh, 50 would go through something similar with the labels as well. So they would eventually kind of act funny with, like, the labels would offer him, and this is after he's already, you know, a star, he would get contracts from certain endorsements and things like that, and they would offer him something, but then when it's time to seal, I mean, time to sign, they start changing certain stipulations and certain the figures and things of that sort, and he would just leave it totally, and, you know, he he was not trying to, he wasn't trying to deal with that. He says a lesson that he learned with that, or like a key to life, is always be willing to walk away. And I thought that was very important and meaningful. And Robert Greene starts talking about like the importance of life. And not even the importance of life, but just death as well. And he says death is certain. And we all fall into the fear of death. And... And we fear how it cancels all of our efforts and it makes things meaningless. And how can we solve that? Humans try to solve that by creating the afterlife and it gives our current actions meaning beyond life. And then also we, we forget about our mortality and we get lost in the moment. And we distract ourselves with our routines and life priorities. And we are reminded that, you know, about our mortality when someone close to us dies. And I kind of had a similar experience when one of my one of my best friends, Chris, Chris Joyce, rest in peace, when he passed away and when he was killed, it happened, you know, no one would have expected it. And I remember just at that time I was in college and just going through motions and, you know, progression of life and this, this abrupt stop and, and it hurt and, and it took me a lot a long time to get over it. I'm, I'm still not over it, to be honest, but it 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 brought me back to my mortality. And, you know, I don't want to say I thought I was invincible, but I definitely did not have that in the forefront of my mind. And after his death, it became a much more apparent thought on a more consistent basis. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say it's unhealthy. I, I think it adds a level of realism and, and humbleness to my life now. And it talk, he also talks about how we, we surround ourselves with other people to try to forget about our loneliness. And people in the hood always do this. You know, I, I always used to do this where 
I'm always with a, with my means. I'm always, you know, either smoking a blunt too, where I'm trying to forget about my loneliness through a substance, so my mind can almost be out of cloud, out of daze. And a couple other points where Robert Greene talks about is, from the moment we are born, we carry inside ourselves our depth, and our only true position possession is the amount of life that we have. And when we run away from the thought of death, we are running away from ourselves. And just those those three points and how he connected them of, of how death is, uh, when he uses the word possession, it's almost something that you can, I don't want to, like, you can put in your pocket almost, where it becomes something very internalized and not just something like the end of, Obviously, it is the end, but it also is also the way that he puts it. It creates it more, more personal and and not just something negative, but something in connection to us, a dichotomy between almost like a yin and yang, where the one thing can't exist with the other, and it exactly is that there is no life without death. And a couple other things he talks about is uh, don't depend on the thought of afterlife and don't drown yourself in the moments to avoid the thought of death. If you do this, you actually despise life because you're kind of, you're just trying to go through the motions or you're trying to get over it quick. And that, like I said, like after the, de- the death of Chris, it, death became much something I thought about a lot more like. I think about the death of my close, of people close to me. And I personally, I don't think it's certain negative. Like, I almost try to prepare myself. I, I, that may be wrong. But, you know, I, I try to prepare myself to what is the life, it, what life, what how life will be after the death of someone I really love. And I, I do that also, like, with my mother and my father. And I love them with all my heart. But if... God willing, if it goes by human nature, they die first and I continue to live. And that's something that will be very traumatizing for me. But I also, it's a blessing for me to see my mother die and for her not to see me die. So it, it, it's something I give a lot of thought. I don't know why. But a couple other points where he says is live life to the fullest. And that doesn't mean always looking for the next pleasure. That's just, you know, that's just looking for your next distraction. Life is is about pursuing goals, and this fills life with purpose and direction. And he starts talking about stoicism, and that's learning the art of how to die. And paradoxically, that teaches you how to live. And he talks about this Roman called Seneca the Younger. I think that's around 4 BC. And they they he was this, you know, this... This politician, he gained a lot of popularities. His peers were jealous of him. They they lied about him doing something. And the leader at the time sent, banishes him to an island. And on that island, he, he, cre- he gets a lot of realizations. And he says, to fear mortality would be to abhor nature itself. And he realizes he's inferior to the smallest animal that accepts death without complaint if he complains about death. And Seneca, Seneca eventually comes back to Rome, and he becomes a tutor to the Emperor of Nero. 
and others eventually will grow jealous of him again and they'll tell lies about him and at this point he's sentenced to death and one of the famous quotes that he says before he dies is i leave you uh i leave you my one remaining possession and my best the pattern of my life and he dies a very slow and painful death but he never shows any sign of anguish i believe he took a very uh like painful poison but throughout the whole time period where he's dying he never shows any sign of distress or pain and this shows you that he you know he accepts he accepted his his death and knew it was a part of the process essentially and you want to accept your mortality and embrace reality and then in the past the idea of death was very more was very much more common and it it seemed as a part of life now death is very you know it's very distant even as simple as you know you go to a grocery store you see your meat whatever part of the you know of the chicken you want whatever part of the you know the the cow that you want is all there but back imagine how much more of appreciation you have for an animal if you were the one that had to kill it if you were the ones that had to gut it and slit its throat and see the life leave from its eyes, you would have a different appreciation for what you're about to eat. Excuse me. And a lot of cultures in the East Asia, they they take pictures with the with dead relatives. They literally dig out the bodies of they, uh, dig up the bodies from their grave, and have younger children take pictures with these dead bodies. What is the point of that? They, the point of that is for these young children to accept the idea of death and the process of it and become more comfortable with it. And in American culture and Western culture, we make death to be a very negative event and we push it to the side or, you know, the only time we ever deal with it is when it occurs and it's abruptly many of the times. And, and especially in the hood, you're not even prepared for the death. In the sense of the the expenses aren't covered. There's no life insurance where, you know, families get a payment out. You know, families who are surviving have to deal not with just the emotional trauma of your death, but also the, the financial baggage of your death and putting you in the grave and, you know, paying for the tombstone and things of that sort. So I kind of liked how East Asian cultures did this with diet, with the dead bodies i'm not saying i would do it but i could see the 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 gene the genius behind it and like the con the mortality the idea and the connection of what mortality really is and this was an interesting thing that they said in the book but the french word for orgasm is le petit mort i, I believe that's how you pronounce it i'm not sure and it means little death and i thought that was kind of funny how um high uh, an extreme level of pleasure is connected with death it's it's an interesting dichotomy and then four sensations of sublime moments and how to conjure conjure them is the sense of rebirth the sense of urgency the sense of awe the sense of oceanic or the connection to all life and i feel like one of the uh, one of the things about like oceanic or the connection to all life is, you know, 
how I thought about it or one thing I felt like I could connect to is like having plants and just you know ever tried having grown a plant I honestly I personally haven't but I've seen others where they try to grow a plant and they put in so much time and effort and then it just dies and they I don't want to say it goes to waste but now you, you know things were out of your control you put in all the effort you did all the right things but yet it still didn't go as planned it it's a very sobering and ex- moment for with that individual and one of the last quotes for the book is there is no knowledge that is not power and honestly i think that is a great way to end the book and i think also is a great way to end this episode guys i hope you have a wonderful amazing day i hope you go you guys go out there and kill it and if you're going to bed or if you know your day's ending soon i hope you feel the best and feel motivated when you wake up guys thank you for listening for listening i appreciate y'all chef jeff food for thought